Okay, welcome to She Became Visible. I'm so happy that uh, we are doing a live podcast again today. Uh, my guest is Felicia Marsh, and uh, Felicia and I discussed the um, Associated Press article that came out about the abuse that was going on in Arizona. And, um, oh, thank you, YouTube, letting me know it's going live. And um, it was a fabulous interview. So I wanted to have Felicia back to talk a little bit about what she does. She is, uh, uh, well, I'm going to let her tell her credentials and everything rather than me try to uh, blow it all up. So anyway, Felicia, thank you for coming back. And I think I'm loving this um, new platform that I have that allows us to discuss on a time frame that's good for both of us and in an environment that's good for both of us. And it's going to allow me to have you back more often because she's a busy person who actually has a job. So, yeah. So Felicia, tell the audience a little bit about, you know, how you came to do what you do and what you do. Yeah. Um, man, that's, that's a loaded intro. Yeah. We don't um, have to start from the beginning. Like it was a dark okay. and dreary evening on October 19. No, no, we'd have to go there, but yeah. Uh, so I'm a trauma therapist. I'm a licensed professional counselor in the state of Arizona, um, master's degree in counseling. And I specialized in treating victims of trauma and abuse in graduate school. So I've been doing it for 10 years now. And um, I, I love what I do. I love working with trauma and abuse and empowering victims. It's just it's, it's my life. Um, it's what I've devoted my time to do. Um, let's see, I came into this field um, because of my own background and uh, being an abuse survivor myself. So I know a lot about it. it it's what made sense to me. It's, it's what I understood the most. Um, and now I've just made it my life helping other victims to be able to heal from abuse. You know, that's so sad um, that people get to, but I've heard that so often. And I, I believe, and I could be totally wrong, I believe that it's because of the experiences that people have that give them the empathy, the sympathy, the understanding to go into a field, whatever that is, you know, alcoholism counseling or drug counseling or sexual abuse, as you have said, or any kind, you know, whatever their field is. And I, I know that um, without going into a supernatural reason for different things happening, um, mm -hmm. because I don't, I don't follow that path, but I do, I do know that experiencing things in life does give you a, a bit of a more open perspective. And I know that, um, you know, the fact that I have a severely disabled adult child, just mm -hmm. having him has opened my eyes in so many ways that never would I have understood if I had not experienced it myself. So it's sad that you had to go through whatever, you know, whatever the trauma was, but the fact that you're helping other people because of it is such a great, a great attribute to the fact of how you've handled the past trauma that you've had. So I, I really, I'm grateful for people like you, for sure. It has to be hard, right? There has to be days when you are just, I'm going to take a bath and <laughs> listen to some sound bowls, you know, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's a lot of self-care that I do on my end, for sure. Right. Because mm -hmm. it is a traumatic, it is a little bit of reliving trauma. Do it you is. find it, that, you know? Yeah. So actually being in the helping profession, so professionals who work with trauma, it's actually called vicarious trauma or secondary trauma. So we are constantly exposing ourselves to mm -hmm. more and more trauma. I've just trained myself to, to be able to handle it. Right. Um, so now it doesn't impact me quite as much um, because I do a lot of grounding and, and self-care outside of work. Um, but there is certainly a lot of exposure and um, people burn out in this field um, yeah. working with, you know, EMTs, first responders, um, right. trauma therapists. Like we have a tendency to burn out if we're not taking care of ourselves. Right. I, I, I just find that so 
amazing the people that like you say first responders mm-hmm. uh, of course me and millions of others took you know i had to watch the jeffrey dahmer thing on on netflix mm-hmm. and and you know talking and the, having the the police force that arrived at his apartment and how that traumatized them and and just these people that do this on a daily basis just the anger they have to deal with daily it is just amazing and thank heavens there are people out there like you that you know are are there to help and Oh, thank you. You know, try to give people some kind of a path of happiness and, and finding joy after whew, daily traumatic experiences. So we're going to talk a little bit about um, abuse and we're going to talk about coercion mm-hmm. and we're talking about consent because I think all of those things fall into so many other areas of people's life that I, I think Consent is one of those things that isn't taken under consideration when we're talking about abuse, um, especially with children. How much power do they have to, you know, it's it's one of those things that um, uh, I know in my former religion, one of the hardest things to understand is people's understanding of free agency, uh, consent versus coercion. And I don't think parents want to admit or think that there's any kind of coercion going on. And of course, you know, with children, you know, just dealing with their brain maturity, of course, we're going to say, you have to take a bath and brush your teeth because it's offensive to other people that you stink, you know, so that, you know, so that's teaching and and helping them become social creatures and, and all of that. But when it comes to abusive behavior, that is done through coercion or lack of consent. That's where we're kind of crossed over the line. So let talk to us a little bit about then when you are dealing with patients that are coming to you, mm-hmm. how do you start the discussion and what do you find some kind of a uh, similarity between people's stories that involve all of those things, coercion, lack of consent and all of those. So talk a little bit about that. Yes, it's, um, all of that is is present in every victim's story because in order for abuse to be present, there has to be a lack of consent. Abuse is about misusing and or abusing power and control in a relationship, whatever that dynamic is. Um, and there's a lack of consent because of this victimization process that I'm about to go through um, called the chart of coercion. So there's a process that abusers of any kind, whether that's a domestic abuser, a cult leader, um, an abusive CEO, uh, abusive parent, etc. cetera. Um, mm. it, there's one process that um, has been studied and shown to be present in all abuse victims and Mm. in the entire process. Um, Mm. So yeah, um, victims come to me and so many times they'll have a sense of shame or guilt about being a survivor or they'll say, you know, I shouldn't have done this or I shouldn't have done this or it's my fault. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. (laughs) Let's take a step back. So I do a lot of educating with them so that they understand, wait a minute, I was not actually an active participant in this. I didn't even know what was happening to me. It happened so early on and so quickly. Um, I use the term insidious. Abuse is very insidious. And we, we don't know it's happening to us until we're all the way down in this coercive pattern of behavior. Mm. You know, by then it's, it's so severe. Um, and you know, people feel trapped. Um, they feel like it's too late. So I want to go over what that process looks like and how people are victimized in that process. Okay. That's great. So yeah, shoot, go. (laughs) So, um, really quick, is there a way to share my screen? If not, I will just talk about it. Oh, you're going to make me work here. Let me see. No, here. it's okay. You don't have to. Um, no, I'm, no, I, I would love to. So is there, okay. do you, do you have on yours? Am I the one with all the settings or do you have any settings I think in there? So. I think You think I'm the one I'm going to push this button. If I lose you, bye. It was fun talking to you. <laughs> no, let me see. Ooh, slides. Ooh, slides. Do you, 
I wonder if you had to send them to me. I actually did yes. send you a link that has oh. the PDF. So, uh, bummer. All right. I think I may have been the one that had to do that. So um, did you send it to, where did you send it? Uh, your email. Hmm. All right. Well, I don't think we're going to do it. Thank you, though. Now I have a new another project for next time. So shoot, I'm. you know what? Let me switch, though. Let me switch to this. Now, I think if I haven't downloaded them already, screen layout, I don't think, I think I have to have some slides in my settings, which I don't have. So, okay. but you, you know what? Start talking. And while you're doing that, I'm going to check my email and see what I can do. Okay, sure. Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so just to kind of go over this process that all victims experience, um, this is called Biderman's Chart of Coercion. There is a lot of research on this process. Um, so I'm just going to start going through the different stages, and then I'm going to explain and provide examples of how this may manifest in different abusive situations. So okay. the first stage of abuse is isolation. Mm. So, uh -huh. Yeah, so the perpetrator, whoever that is, again, it could be an intimate partner, um, parent, cult leader, whoever the abuser is, there is an aspect of isolation. It doesn't necessarily mean complete physical isolation. So they're not always going to, you know, move you out into the middle of the woods where right. you know, there, there's nobody around. Isolation can take many forms. It can take the form of um, emotionally and socially isolating someone, um, you know, making subtle little comments of, I don't want you talking to that person. Why, why are you going over there? Why are you talking to your family again? So, you know, they'll make these little comments and over time, again, it's very insidious. Mm -hmm. So victims will, you know, start to think, oh, well, yeah, maybe I shouldn't be talking to this, or maybe, maybe I do talk to them too much, um, et cetera. So they'll start to isolate people from friends, family in very small ways, usually, mm -hmm. um, there are cases I've worked where the perpetrator has moved someone. I mean, I've, I've worked with someone who was moved to a different country wow, and yeah. yeah, and isolated that way. So that does happen. Um, but typically it's more emotional and social isolation, just not wanting you to have a support system outside of them. Mm -hmm. um, victims will start to slowly realize, wait a minute, my support system is dwindling. I'm not spending mm -hmm. as much time with my friends anymore. Now, all of a sudden, his friends are my friends. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I hear that a lot. And that's because, well, isolation is the first stage, because in order to do any of these other things, they have to isolate you. In some interesting. It, it is. Yeah. It's, it, it's interesting to see it when your eyes are opened a little bit. Yeah. And then you start reflecting on cases of isolation. I mean, you've heard the yeah. typical abusive husband or whatever that takes, it says, I don't want you going over to your mom's anymore, or I don't want you hanging out with your sister. Yeah. I think she's, you know, really being, you know, she's bringing yeah. negativity into our marriage or, you know, you've heard those stories before, but then you start hearing in cult, you know, different cults yes. where they've isolated people, taken them away from their family. But then you see it even in other kind of, uh, cultural experiences that some people would not consider a cult. And yet you see, well, you know, um, there's a large uh, 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 group of uh, people that have all the same beliefs and they all live in the same area and they don't want their children playing with the other children that aren't members of their, you know, religion or something like that because they're afraid that there might be, you know, and it's, uh, you, you know, you I can see the natural protectiveness that comes into that if you think there's a danger like do I want my my child hanging out with a kid that I know is into drugs and has you know guns laying all over his bedroom no so I you know you can see where there's a natural I, I don't I don't think I you know but I remember moving to a new little city with my gang of family and actually having people say uh, because we came into we moved into this little city and kids were had already started school. And so there was already like, they had already been assigned to classrooms. And so 
one of my children was put into a classroom and it, it just seemed to be a classroom of misfits, you know? Mm -hmm. And, but she's just one of these people that loves everybody. So she made friends and she's like, can I go over to this person's house and stay there? And, and it was like, sure, you know, and it was a single mom living in an apartment. And I remember having other people that happened to be in my uh, congregation that were like, I can't believe you're letting her go over there. And do you know that this is a single mom and, you know, this, and I remember thinking, I don't, and, and, you know, but that <laughs> mindset of isolation though. So, yeah. So it's interesting how you can take something that seems fairly benign, but if it goes to a certain level, it crosses over into coercion. That's very interesting. Something to be just aware of when you start hearing people say, don't do this or don't do that or just. Exactly. You know, yes, know. yes. Can certainly be red flags. Um, so, yeah, you know, to your point, if if a parent is saying, well, don't do this, don't do that, um, don't hang out with this person, if if it's uh, a benevolent um, reason, then it, it's not coercive. In right. sense. like it's not abusive um, because you're doing it for a good reason. But if you're doing it strictly for the purpose of power and control, um, that's when it becomes abuse. So yeah. we have to look at all of these behaviors. Is this through the lens of trying to gain power and control over one or a, a group of individuals? And if so, then yes, it is abusive and it is coercive. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Really good. Just to have, I just feel like information like this is good to have in the back of your mind. You know, even I remember even feeling uncomfortable um, at church when there would be a, a speaker, a, a male speaker specifically that would say things like, girls, you know, you don't need to be talking to your moms and your girlfriends. You know, your husband is your is your partner and you should be only sharing things with your husband. And I remember thinking, eh, that sounds a little scary, you know, exactly. uh, and it's like, it's like you say, power, you know, uh, I don't want information about our family getting out and, you know, that kind of stuff and putting on a facade. And I just remember feeling a little like, yeah, there's more to this story, you know. So interesting. Interesting. Okay. So go on. Fabulous. Yeah. So um, just to kind of piggyback off of the, the church comment. So what we'll see with fundamental types of religions, um, especially, you know, the Mormon church, is it okay if I call it the oh, Mormon church? Uh, in my world, it is. <laughs> that's what it was a couple of years ago. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, that's my, that's my definition. My, my label. Okay. All right. Well, I just feel like most people will understand that. So exactly. Yeah. Um, so what I see with um, in regards to isolation in the Mormon church, the, the LDS religion is like you said, not, um, not um, cohorting with people who are not part of that religion. So there's a lot of this, you know, us versus them mentality and isolating people from, you know, sort of this, outside world. Well, I don't want you spending time with these people or you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't talk to them because, well, they don't have the true gospel. They're not special the way that we are. So um, parents and church leaders will start to isolate people in that religion um, from a very young age and people just start to grow up feeling isolated and, and Pretty soon, you're only surrounded by people within that particular organization, within mm -hmm. that church, who share your beliefs, and you're not exposed to right. people who have alternative beliefs or ideas, which is actually very healthy. Yeah. And to me, that's part of what makes it a cult. So I think it's interesting that people conflict the idea of uh, a higher education to uh, some kind of evil, because I've heard so many stories of very, very devout members of the Mormon church who are still devout members of the Mormon church, but they'll often reflect on this period of their life when they left Utah and went to university somewhere and yeah. their eyes were open to uh, things that they had never heard before. And they talk about the struggle that they had because they went to Harvard and they took a humanities class or whatever. And they're like, what? You know, and and they had cognitive dissonance a yes. lot and they were able to, you know, justify and somehow go, come back to a conclusion that worked for them. But it was the they had to get out of the bubble to be even just 
opened up to different ideas. And that's why I think it's so important. I wish there was some kind of program where every mm -hmm. child in America, part of their collegiate experience would be having to go abroad, having to leave the United mm -hmm. States yeah. and go live in another country because it just, it really, it's kind of like I was saying, it's kind of like having a handicapped child. All of a sudden you go, oh, okay. Let me think about this, you know? Um, I mean, I, I lived in Japan for two and a half years and just just soaked up that environment and the people. And I and my daughter has had a wonderful, she's lived in Saudi Arabia, she's lived in China, she's lived in so many places and she has such a love. She's still helping people, you know, now in the United States that are refugees from, you know, the Middle East. And and so it's just such an eye-opening experience. I For, mm -hmm. for people, <laughs> for children in Utah, it would just be like, we're going to send you to um, Tennessee. They don't even have to. Just outside of Utah would be a foreign country for them. <laughs> okay, I'm, don't yell at me, people. I don't want to hear it. It was a joke. All right, whatever. So no, go on though. Yeah. Okay. So that's isolation. Again, that's the first stage. Um, so then abusers will move on to what's called the monopolization of perception. Um, mm -hmm. So basically you're getting all of your information from them because you're isolated and right. you don't really have a support system to check in with. So now they're able to completely manipulate you. And this is where, you know, that gaslighting starts to oh. come in and um, you know, they'll, they'll tell you one thing and you're like, wait a minute, I don't think that's right, but I don't really have anybody I can check in with. Or, you know, if, if you're in a fundamental religion, um, you know, and, and you hear something that doesn't quite make sense, but you're told, oh, you know, you just need to believe, you just need to have faith. And you don't really have anybody else you can check in with because you, you've been isolated and told, well, don't associate with those people because right. they're not in our group. Um, right. So this is where abusers will start to control even how you think. Um, mm -hmm. And the example that I will give for this is um, sometimes you'll hear, um, this is just an example, but you know, mm -hmm. let's say you're in a conversation with the abuser and you're like, hey, look at that beautiful blue sky. And they look at you like you're crazy and they say, what are you talking about? The sky is purple. And you're yeah. like, I'm pretty sure it's blue and they keep going at you. They're like, I can't believe you think it's blue. It's clearly purple. You're stupid. Da, 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 da. And you know, over and over after you hear this so many times right. and you have nobody to check in with, you really start to second guess yourself and think right. that you're the one who's crazy and yeah. you're the one who's making things up. So we call this crazy making, we call it gaslighting manipulation, monopolization, whatever you want to call it, it's all the same. Right, right. Um, they are controlling your information, um, how you get it and how you see things. Right. I think it's so interesting, especially like you were saying in a fundamental religion, um, mm -hmm. any fundamental religion with Christianity or whatever, when you bring in an outside supernatural force, um, it becomes even scarier because it, now it's like, well, Satan is doing, you know, is telling yeah. you this. So now you have a supernatural God that is giving you this information that is leading you down a path versus just historical knowledge or humanity type, you know, emotion. Sure. And so then you have a, a, an, an even stronger force that you can't, you think, well, I, you know, maybe there is a higher power because if you've been instructed that, we're going to tell you what, uh, how you should act. And if you pray about it and you get a feeling that you shouldn't act that way, then it's obviously from Satan. Otherwise you would agree with us. So that where are your, that's a black and white. Where are my options with that? The, the only option you have is to either say, mm, I don't think so. I think you might be wrong, which is threatening depending on where you're at in that relationship. So that's very interesting. And I love there's, there's, it's amazing how many people have not heard the term gaslighting. And um, mm -hmm. I remember even before I had started doing any kind of historical research and, but I remember, um, uh, gosh, it must've been in 2018. I don't know, somebody will fact check it. But when uh, the president, the prophet of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, 
L-M-N-O-P-Q-R-T, um, said that, that when they started letting women be witnesses and they started talking more about women in the priesthood, in one of his conference talks, and he said, women have always had the priesthood. What are you talking about? If you've been to the temple, you've seen that women have always had the priesthood. You've always had the priest. You don't need a guy to come over. You're, if you're a single mom, you have the priesthood in your home. And I remember going, that I've never heard that before. That was the first time I experienced like church gaslighting. It was like, wow, that was an out and out lie. And you honestly want me to believe that we've always told you that. And that that to me was a perfect example of gaslighting where people are like, oh, oh, okay. Yeah, I, yeah, no, that's it. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and you start to question yourself and your own sense of memory, and you're yeah. like, oh, well, okay, yeah, maybe I did know that. That, yes, if you are second guessing yourself, you may be being gaslit. Just, yeah, no yeah. very yeah. interesting. And if anybody doesn't truly understand the gaslighting, go back to uh, Google Gaslight Movie with Ingrid Bergman, you'll find it. You can watch it where that's where the whole term came from. But anyway, so yes, that is a scary thing because you see really really intelligent people that start to question their knowledge that they were very strongly confirmed on so anyway so yeah that's that's uh and i think that's so women are so much more gullible for that kind of coercion we are yeah we um, we definitely are because we're just by nature, typically much more trusting and kind and nurturing, you know, we were born with this sort of, um, you know, innate nurturing, caring capacity that makes us more vulnerable to this type of stuff because until we learn better, we can be very easy to manipulate. Right. And I think it's a blessing. Like you say, it's a blessing. Uh, that we are more able to use both our left and our right brains. But mm-hmm. sometimes it's a curse because we do yeah. find ourselves emotionally trying to see both sides of the story. And that's yes. a good quality. But the bad side of it is when someone is using coercion on you, then you're going, well, maybe that's right. I, I uh-huh. maybe, you know, so yeah, yeah, interesting. Yes. So that was um, the second stage, which is manipulating your sense of perception. And then we move into stage three, which is humiliation and degradation. Um, So um, this can also look like a number of different ways. Um, You know, it can be humiliating you on social media, um, humiliating you in front of friends or humiliating and degrading you just um, in private. So mm -hmm. I've worked with some victims who have, have had to experience some very low degrading behaviors, um, you know, being locked in a closet, having to urinate, defecate in the closet, um, scrubbing the floor with a toothbrush, um, you know, just very degrading things um, in order to enact more power and control over this person. Um, And there's also a sense of threat about that. um, And we'll get to threats and in a couple of um, terms, but um, there's also a sense of threat if if you're being humiliated, then I feel like there's this underlying threat of, okay, well, um, something's going to happen. Either I'm gonna lose my friends, I'm gonna lose my reputation. Mm -hmm. Um, The church does this in the sense um, that they will, you know, publicly shame you or, Yeah. Um, I don't see why people don't see that. When I, when I see the, uh, this is one of the things I need to, I need someone to explain to me. If you, I mean, the whole idea of the sacrament is to renew the covenants that you made at baptism, which is forgiveness for your sins, right? To mm-hmm. renew your covenant that you made with Jesus to live more, you know, with un, under his rules and covenants. That's the whole purpose of the sacrament. So to tell someone who has been considered a sinner to not take advantage of the covenants that they made at baptism, which washed away their sins, to me is like, that's like saying, oh, you're starving to death. You know what you need to do? You need to fast for four days. You know, it's just completely yeah. contrary to what you would yeah. think. Well, I've, 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 I feel like I've sinned or I've been told that I've sinned. So I'm going to renew the covenants that I made at baptism, take the sacrament, make my promise again to Jesus 
that seems like a healthy experience. But to publicly shame someone to not to have to have that poor little 12 year old boy walk past you. And then they're going home like, mom, did you know that sister Rose didn't take the sacrament today? And everybody's like, oh, I wonder what she did. You know, the whole public. In fact, when I was down in in visiting my daughter, uh, I have a daughter in law. I have a little uh, granddaughter that's just, you know, of course, she's the best Mm -hmm. in the world. And I'm sitting next to her and she hands me the sacrament tray. And I'm like, absolutely. A little peanut butter and jelly. Pass it on. I'm not going to not take the sacrament. So that my little granddaughter is like, why didn't Nana take the sacrament, mommy? You know? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, yeah, the public shaming, it used to be worse. I mean, I, it used to be more, you know, actual public and the priesthood part of it where they would actually stand up and, you know, but I, I love how they'll say, don't take the sacrament. But then when you have something happen in a ward, that's like some member of the ward has done something, you know, horrific. Mm-hmm. The bishop will stand up and say, I don't want this talked about. We don't, we're not going to interfere with that person's repentance process. I don't want this gossiped about, you know, everybody has the opportunity to repent and go. I'm like, Oh really? Okay. Well, we won't talk about that guy, but we, but this little deacon over here that, you know, might be kissed his girlfriend a little too, too much. Don't take the sacrament. Let's shame him in sacrament meeting, you know? Ooh, yeah, that's, that's a really good point. Yeah, let's yeah. sweep sexual abuse under the rug because we don't yeah. want to talk about that. But here, yeah. you know, 12-year-old masturbated. And of yeah. course, you know, yeah. like, what the fuck? Like, yeah. Well, and a 12-year-old, I mean, you got some, you've got a 14 or 15-year-old that's not taking the sacrament. There's a good chance they didn't embezzle money from the company. You know, exactly. so everybody yeah, pretty much know, has right? it figured out. Yeah. So, <laughs> it's so, it's so, it's so barbaric. I just think it's it so is. barbaric, it's, you know. That's actually and, a great word, barbaric, yeah. Yeah, and I also think that the whole modesty culture is a way of shaming. For yes. people to stand up and give all of these things, which only apply to females, is a way of shaming people into, you know, it's a coercion yep. thing, really. Absolutely. So. Interesting. Okay, go on. But yeah. Um, Okay, so that was humiliation and degradation. Then comes the stage of exhaustion. So this is where the abuser will, you know, just um, work you mentally or physically to the point of exhaustion. So you really don't have energy (laughs) or fighting. Where have we seen that before? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so this could be, um, you know, making the victim work both in and out of the home while the abuser stays home and does nothing. Um, It could be um, mental exhaustion, such as, you know, sitting you down and sort of interrogating you um, over and over about where you've been and who have you been doing, what have you been doing. There's, you know, this mental um, and emotional exhaustion. I've worked with victims who have been kept up at night. Um, oh. So they were physically exhausted by having their sleep constantly interrupted. Oh um, that's a tactic that they'll use to exhaust you so that you're kind of debilitated and you can't mm-hmm. really question or fight back. Um, so um, that certainly happens. And then, you know, within the church, oh my gosh, they, you know, they, they work you to death. You have to mm-hmm. be involved this and this and this and this and if you're not well you're not being good enough and you know you're publicly shamed for not participating in all of these so you you know you devote your entire life essentially and you're working and volunteering and um they yeah it's it's just exhaustion and then that's so true and i probably one of the biggest things that gets my craw up is uh when you hear people when you hear the authorities who are trying to apologize for the history and they'll say, well, mm-hmm. we're not hiding anything. We've never hidden anything because in 1971, we published an article about the rock and the hat versus the translation of the golden plates in the children's friend. If you didn't see it, that's your fault. And I'm like, well, I didn't graduate from high school till 1972. I was 12 when we joined the church. I don't even think we got the friend in our house. And, you know, and then you're busy starting your career, going to college, getting married, having children, whatever you're doing. It's like I didn't even I mean, I had the children's friend because I had children. But I assumed that the children's Mm -hmm. friend 
was a little bit more of an infant type of reading material. I also only read Dr. Seuss when I was reading it to my children. So to, you know what I mean? So that to use that as a perfect example of gaslighting, um, but also working people to death to where they're like, I was raising a huge family and, you know, doing all of this historical research, I had a lesson to prepare on Sunday. That's what I was studying that week, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's a perfect example of just, but it, it is amazing to me, Felicia, that in 2022, you have clients coming to you with these stories, regardless of fundamental religion. I'm just saying any type of manipulative behavior where they're being kept up all night and made to clean the floor. And, you know, sure, you can go out with, I mean, hello, Cinderella, you can go out with your friends on Friday, as long as all my laundry's done and you've got exactly. you know, the kids are in bed and, you know, I can play my video games all night, you know. Um, sure, you can go, you know, my biggest thing with men's basketball has always been like, really, you had a hard day at work. So you're going to go eat dinner, throw down your fork and then go play basketball so she can put all the kids in bed, clean up the kitchen and get ready for the next day. You know, I mean, that was always my my biggest thing was I hated. I thought men's basketball was the most misogynistic thing that there ever was in the church. But um, but yeah, that's amazing that you have that in this day and age. That power. It's, yeah, it's unreal. Um, the the things that people do to each other, it's it's horrible. Um, yeah. yeah. So um, do you find, do you, because I was telling my husband, if you want to see what life was like and where the church culture kind of came from, which is a whole nother subject as far as like, are we talking to Jesus or are we just following the culture? Mm. I've been watching old reruns of Twilight Zone which was filmed in the 50s and 60s, right? Mm -hmm. And the, this one I watched the other day, this guy wakes up and he's lost his identity, but it starts out, he wakes up in bed, his wife's over in the corner, on, you know, she's rolled over on the one side of the bed. He wakes up in complete suit and he's like, oh, thank you. You didn't even take my shoes off when you put me to bed. Heaven forbid you should get up and fix me breakfast. Sorry that I have to go to work an hour late. And in the, this is the whole dialogue. And I watch, I'm like, wow, that was like the mentality. That is exactly what women were like. How come when I was drunk and I came home from the party, you didn't put me in bed. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. wow, this is what, this is my parents. This is what, you know, they were, what they were raised. But anyway, so yeah, that's, that's heartbreaking. Absolutely heartbreaking, but very subtly still going on in many different areas. So, yeah. Yes. Unfortunately. Yeah. All okay, right. so that was exhaustion. Um, the next phase, this is where we get to threats. So yeah. now the abuser has you isolated and manipulated and degraded where you don't feel like you're a human and then, you know, completely exhausted. Well, now is when they can actually start to threaten you or do their assaults, whatever that is. Um, there are threats of um, just overall this person has complete power or the system has complplete power over you um, right. so they may make threats such as um, you know if if you do leave you'll never see your family or your kids again I will oh yeah that one happens a lot yeah. um, you know if if you leave or if you tell anyone I will kill you um, Yikes. I will, I will go after your family, the people that you love, you know, I'll, I'll hurt the family pets. Um, people make all sorts of kinds of threats. Um, and within, you know, fundamental sorts of religions or especially, um, you know, the LDS church threats of excommunication, threats of mm -hmm. punishment, you know, you speak out against this. Well, you know, now we're going to have to punish you in some way. And that punishment could be, you know, complete excommunication, complete ostracization of, um, you know, away from everyone that you've been close to. Um, so there's just a number of different ways that they can threaten uh, punishment for right, right. non-compliance, essentially. Yeah. And it's funny when you talk about the term, and if anyone's listening, that's never heard this term, if you talk about the term, bishopric roulette 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've heard so many wonderful stories. I, I a couple of weeks ago, I interviewed uh, Lila Tuller. And, you know, when her and her husband decided to divorce, he immediately went to the bishop and she thought, oh, no, here goes. But he called her into his office and he said, I've been praying about you and I want you to know that you deserve to be happy, whatever that means. And I was like, wow, that's mm-hmm. an amazing man who really mm-hmm. humbled himself to really I mean, I'm sure he did pray about it. And and to him, that is the answer he got because he wasn't throwing his ego into his prayer. But when you're talking about bishopric roulette, then I also have friends who literally had their bishops tell their husbands to divorce them because they needed, especially men, because you can go find another wife and then you can have your celestial family. And, and, uh, and you know what? You don't even have to divorce her because she'll come around maybe in the next life. So you can marry, you can stay temple married to her, go find somebody that's going to support you. And, you know, and that's, you know, in this day and age, that's what they're being told to go ahead, destroy your family because you're the male. You can have more than one wife in the next life. And that's what it's all about anyway. Oh you know. my God. That's horrible. How misogynistic and patriarchal. Yeah. Oh, that's and what's really odd is when you hear people say, you know, this is my probably my biggest thing is they're just human. No one's perfect. And I'm like, okay, we need to dissect that comment about no one being perfect because no one being perfect means I got a little too angry with my kids the other day. I shouldn't have done that. Yeah. Or I accidentally hit the car next to me with my door. You know. That's not, or, or, you know, or I'm a, I am a little selfish or I, yeah, I'm a little too, you know, nosy in other people's business. Those are all the perfections that we all work on. Right. Yeah. Embezzling money, um, you know, abusing children. That's not like, well, we all have faults, you know, and oh. somebody who has been put in a position of power you are over 600 people in your congregation. You have the authority to manipulate their spiritual lives. And you feel like whatever comes into your head is the okay thing to, thing to say. And you're destroying people's lives. That's not just a human fallacy. That's a power trip, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Especially well, with men, I feel. Now, this is my, I'm going to totally tangent into my own personal bias. But I've seen that more in men who have never had an opportunity to hold a leadership position in their work. But by being given this leadership position, they are like, oh, I'm in charge now. You know, people that have had chances for leadership and have actually had managerial type uh, experience, they seem to understand how it works to be a leader. And um, so that's, it's very interesting. But I actually went out to visit a friend who moved to a very small town outside of New York City. And it's funny because if you think the entire state of New York is this, you know, metropolitan, very, you know, elite, educated, you know, uh, open minded state. And it's not. You've got small little weirdo communities everywhere, you know. So she belonged. So they moved to this little tiny community. The bishop was a convert. And um, he he's just like this good old, you know, Italian man that was not very long in the church, hadn't really been raised with the customs and stuff. And he would be like, okay, um, you know, I was sitting in sacrament meeting with my friend. He's like, my son's going on a mission. My mom's going to give a talk. My dad's going to give a talk. Neither one of them remembers the church. And, uh, and then I'm going to tell my, my wife's going to go home, get the food going so that when we get home, the food will be ready to go. And I'm going, and, and he's telling all this over the pulpit. And I'm going, what is happening here? What? Am I in the twilight? Is this a punk? What's happening here? You know, it was hilarious. I loved it. I mean, it was great. You know, his mom gets up in a pair of pants and talks about her grandson and then goes home and helps, you know, get the lasagna ready. And I was like, wow, I want to go to church here all the time. You know, the Relief Society president was not paying her tithing so that she didn't have to go in for a temple recommend. So she didn't have to confess that she was having an affair with the, I mean, the whole ward was like this. I mean, it was, I would call my friend every week and go, well, what happened at church today? You know, oh but when you get outside of the bubble, you know, things can be way more fun. But anyway, how did I get on that tangent? What were we talking about? <laughs> Manipulation, know. coercion, uh, just people having that power to just tell people what they can and can't do. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. 
and you're mm -hmm. at the and you're at the mercy of it because of your position so yeah exactly yeah. and yeah. and that's the the sad part is um yeah victims don't realize um you know how deep they are in in this abuse process and you know how much power and autonomy has been taken away from them especially when you say if you know the you can't go from a to, to there is a process and the, process, that yeah. one process that you talked about of humiliating and degrading their self-esteem and putting, you know, having their self-love completely destroyed. When then you get to step, you know, D and E, how easy is it to manipulate somebody say, you, you have no education. We got married when you were 19. How do you think you're going to support yourself? I have all the money in this family. I'll, I'll take everything. You'll be left with nothing. You know? Yes. And that is threatened so much in abusive relationships, um, right. which is one reason why victims don't leave. Um, right. Yeah. Because, you know, they're afraid. Yeah. I love the story of, I was just listening to someone's story of when they left the church and they just talked about how, when they first heard about Joseph Smith and polygamy and they started reading the journals and the, and the history of the, the women and, and actually hearing their story and how isolated they were and how um, stuck they were. And there, there was, where are you going to go? I just flew over, you know, I just took a boat from England and then walked from, you know, wherever to get out to Utah. I've left my entire family. I've been isolated from my family. And now I'm marrying this 67 year old guy. And what am I, where am I going? So it's like, you know, how many of them left with the soldiers on their way to California. Yeah, that was their way out. You know, we don't talk about those stories, you know, in Relief Society. But um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's what horrible. are some of the stories? How, how do you help the women that have had their self-esteem destroyed? How do you help them regain it when they have so many doubts that have been put into their heads? Yeah, so um, I personally use a process in therapy. Um, because there's, there's a lot of deconditioning that needs to happen whenever someone has been in an abusive relationship because they've been brainwashed by this process yeah. that we're going through. So, you know, once they're out of it, I, I will not work with someone who's still actively in an abusive relationship because I can't uh, decondition them. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah. So I'll That's good to know. Yeah. I can't help you if, if you're going to, you know, continue to be in this. If you want to leave, I'll help you get the resources to leave, okay. um, but I can't, you know, decondition you. So right. there's that deconditioning essentially um, through education and just through processing and having them constantly repeat out loud and me reflect back, um, you know, well, what does that sound like when, when I say it back to you? And what would you say to someone else who's in that situation? Um, so I do a lot of that and then, you know, processing through the memories and then actually rebuilding their self-esteem, helping them to figure out who they are because they don't, their identity has been broken and destroyed. Right. Um, so I help them to rebuild by figuring out who they are and developing a relationship with themselves so that they can become empowered. That's really important. I'm glad that you said that because a lot of times um, you'll hear people say, we, we went to counseling, we went to marriage counseling, or we went to couples counseling. And I, I can see where that doesn't work if the behavior is still going on. And someone, one of, one of the partners has to admit that they have been using some of those tools to control. If they're not admitting that, then there's no sense in going to any kind of counseling. So and you have to get out of that situation to like, I, I remember I had a friend that was a counselor and she said, I, I, I didn't, I wouldn't treat people with alcohol or drug issue. And, no. uh, you know, so there is certain, there is a criteria that you have to be a mental state you have to be at. So that's good to know. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so we have three more stages here that I just want to run through really quickly. Um, so after they've, you know, been able to threaten you, punish you, um, this is when the abuser will kind of throw you a bone, give you an occasional indulgence, 
um, in the abuse cycle, it's called the honeymoon phase where, you know, maybe they'll have these loving behaviors. They'll apologize. Um, they'll make you feel good, take you out to dinner, buy you gifts, stuff like that. Um, or, you know, in a church, um, they may give you praise for all of these things that you've done, or, um, I don't know, give you some sort of leadership. Tell you that you've had the priesthood all along. Tell you that you can now be on this council that they've set up. No, right. Yes, exactly. These occasional, I'm just going to throw you a bone here and there, just yeah. enough to keep you hooked so yeah. that you realize, well, I'm not bad all the time. Yeah. We want to hear your voice. Just yeah. keep it down. Just keep it down. No. Yeah. Don't talk too much. Yeah, exactly. Yes. So people, the women are like, look, look at this power we've been given. Yeah. See, it's, it's not that bad. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's how they get you. That's how they yeah. keep yeah. you hooked. Um, yeah. And then once you're hooked, um, you know, and, and they've kind of renewed that cycle, this is when they can start to um, demonstrate complete omnipotence. Um, so this is the next stage of becoming all powerful. They have all the power in the situation, in the relationship. Resistance seems futile. I can't fight back. I'm tired. I have no support. Um, you know, if, if I do try to leave, they're going to do this, this, and this, like it, this is where victims essentially just kind of give up and feel stuck at this right, point. Right. And they're usually way down in this level or somewhere, you know, in the bottom of the process before they even realize they're in an abusive relationship. Right. It, because it, it hasn't gotten bad enough for them to be able to see it. But now they're stuck because the abuser now has all the power. Like they, you know, they don't have access to money or finances or support. Or like within the church, the church demonstrates itself as being completely powerful and having all the authority and how dare you question anything um, because we are the authority. We get our information directly from God. And if you go against us, well, that makes you a bad person or <laughs> a, a, a bad Mormon or whatever. Um, so resistance just kind of seems futile and people just kind of give up, you know, in, in this stage. You know, what's so interesting about that, that it really kind of makes me, shiver a little bit mm -hmm. is as you're talk as you're saying that what I hear is a situation where you have uh, especially women where you have women um, being told yeah it really sucks doesn't it patriarchy sucks and yeah you guys are really being taken advantage of right yeah and they're and they're given all of this you know, new freedom to be able to, to voice their, their mm -hmm. unhappiness. But then they're said, but what are you going to do? See you Sunday. You're going to help out with that relief society party, you know, because to actually say, I'm not going to help you unless you get out of that abusive situation is the same thing as saying, look, you know, yes, he's a little abusive, but look what you've got. You've got community, AKA a beautiful home. You've got um, support. You know, your kids have got a great youth program, AKA uh, uh, you live in a neighborhood and you really like your friends. You know, all of, you know, uh, look, look who I am. I am, you know, I have a pedigree, AKA I'm seven generation Mormon. You know, there, it's the same thing where it's like, you can't leave. You can't get out of this yep. abusive situation. Where are you going to go? Because I am giving you, I'm giving your community. I'm giving you your structure that you need. I'm giving you your purpose. I'm giving you who you are. How dare you leave? If that's not an example of psychological abuse. And I think the people that are telling these people, you're right. It's crappy. It sucks. But you got your community, right? Mm -hmm. That's almost more dangerous. That's scary. It is. It's yeah, it's completely diabolical, in my opinion. Um, and I would have a hard time believing that they don't know what they're doing. Um, you know, they, they have to know in some way, shape or form that they're manipulating and, and right. controlling people, you know, through, yeah. through these things. Um, so yeah, people, people don't feel like they can leave because right. Where are they going to go? Who are they going to turn to? Um, they're going to be shunned. It, it's so much harder 
to leave and deal with that than it is to just stay right keep doing what you're supposed to be doing right right especially and i think it's very i think one of the most dangerous things especially in the lds church is the idea that you will lose your community and i think it depends on where you are in the season of your life because i was explaining to someone that i i said you know i had a real there was a really wonderful older couple that went in a ward, one of the other, when we used to live in Oregon and as they aged and I, they're, you know, 15 years older than we are. So I was able to kind of watch them go through some of the seasons of life. One of the things that happens when you age naturally is you start to lose your community because a lot of times your community is your children, their activities, their dance recital, their baseball games, uh, young women's camp, you know, as your kids are in your life, that's your, those are your friends and you and, and the other moms and the mom group, or now you're in Relief Society and you're all 40 and 50 and you all have teenagers. And so you're starting to have this little mom's group. Then they turn 65 and they retire. The ward has completely been split. All the people that they used to know has, have moved. Their kids have grown up and moved. Um, now they're in a ward where they're the old people in the ward. Uh, everybody else in the ward is 40. They don't really belong. So they start going on missions to find their gang of people. And that's all they have. Then they come home from their missions and they're lost, you know? And so I look at that and I think you don't understand when you say I can't leave because this is my community. You either haven't gotten old yet to know that you're going to lose your community at some point. It's going to be you and your kids and your husband. That's it, you know, and and there's some fabulous people out there and you start joining a book club or you start joining a bunco group or you find whatever it is you do. There is knitting groups, crocheting groups, pickleball, heaven forbid, pickleball. I mean, there are groups, there are communities out there with the nicest, kindest people that are in your age group. You can find your age group. You can find your interest, but they don't tell you that. Because they've told you that if you go and play pickleball with a group of women who are going to go over to the little, you know, taco place next door afterwards, and they might get a little tequila with their taco, that you're going to die, you know, because that's the mind thing they've been told. So I think that losing your community and being shunned by your family is probably for sure. scary. Yeah. yeah, for sure. It is terrifying. And, you know, that's why victims will stay in relationships, whether it's a domestic violence relationship or, you know, it's a systemic relationship with a church. Um, it, it is very hard to leave. Mm. Um, and just really quickly, the last stage is where the abuser um, will start to enforce trivial demands. Um, so an example that I give for this is, you know, let's say you're coming home from work one day and, you know, the abuser calls you and says, I need you to go to the store and get milk before you come home. And you're like, oh, well, I checked the fridge this morning and we had plenty of milk. And they're like, well, I want you to go get milk. That's what I said for you to do. Oh, interesting. So it's like these little things and they don't really matter, but it's strictly to keep you in that compliance with them. Um, so that you're constantly used to, well, I have to, I have to do this or else. And wow. so in the church, I think of that as, you know, reading your scriptures and saying your prayers every day, they seem like little things, but it's how they, enforce compliance because right. what happens when you don't do those things they shun you they punish you they shame you they tell you you're not doing enough so it's like these little things just kind of keep you hooked in this cycle um and it seems like it doesn't matter but really it's part of the bigger picture right i i would put probably temple attendance on that one that is the big thing because you know they really don't care i mean if you're if you declined the calling to work with the, you know, the 11 year olds in primary or whatever. If you said, you know, I can't do that right now. I have 7,000 children and you know, my husband's gone all the time. So the church is like, yeah, yeah, whatever she is who she is, but you don't hold a temple recommend. Oh no, no, no. That means you're not giving us 10% of your income. That means that we can't trust you because you're probably not honest in all your dealings. 
and yeah. you know, and they go through that whole thing. And mm-hmm. so that's the one thing, especially as people age. And I and I think I just heard some statistics that the need for volunteers, because now they're opening up all these fictitious temples that they're supposedly building. Um, and who's going to man the temple? They need older people to man these temples. That's why they need, you know, everybody having a temple recommend because that's where they can put these people, you know, I mean, there's so much manipulation that is in on that, but that is interesting. I've never thought of like, just like you say, the little things like, well, I don't know. I I just, I can't find my black socks. Can you just stop? I mean, that's such a little, I mean, geez, my wife, you can't stop and get me some black socks. Exactly. Yes. (sighs) Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. So, so that is the process of abuse. Um, so now you can see how there's no autonomy in any of this because it's right. done to you without consent. Like you have no idea that this stuff is happening to you. Exactly. Um, like within the church, um, they don't tell you these things, right? Um, right? Or there's information that you find out later through doing your own research that, that they don't tell you up front. So there's just this significant lack of consent and autonomy. Um, right. but that's what keeps a victim a victim. Yeah. That's so amazing, Felicia. I can't, it's, it's scary when you start seeing this list of abusive behavior that you could, that can be played on. Like you say, this can be not only in a fundamental religion, but do you have a boss that asks you, uh, for absurd, weird things to show yeah. that you're a good, you know, employee. And it's like, geez, I know it's five o'clock and it's Friday. And you told me you were heading to the beach this weekend, but if you could just get that report done, exactly. then, you know, that's mm-hmm. a power thing. So that yeah. you can, if you take those, that list of things, um, which I'm going to try, send me that list so that I, I can at least connect it in the podcast. I'll put it in the yeah. show notes yeah, so absolutely. that at least people can find it. Cause I do think it would, it should almost be like a uh, like a little reminder checklist of things that I need to be really aware of in my life, whether it's my employment, my religion, my marriage, my uh, partnership, or how whatever it is, just to make sure that everybody's playing the game correctly. And and if anybody's getting a little out of line, we can like pull them back or or whatever. Just awareness. Awareness does so much, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And if you can be aware, maybe we can cut it off, you know, before it even gets to some of these other layers and, you know, we can save another person. Right. Do you, do you, as we're just leaving, is there a demographic that you see more of in your practice? Um, An age range or men versus women? Do you do couples counseling as well? I do not do couples counseling. Okay. Um, so I, I see mostly females. Um, men, men are difficult because they, they don't often report when they're being abused. So we don't. Uh, all of that's, the- a, that's a horrible thing, isn't it? Because it would reflect on their manhood. That's sad. Yeah. So we don't really know how many male victims there are. We know that there are, and yes, I do have some male victims. Um, but in my practice, I mostly see females. Um, and I see all ages. I see children through elderly. Um, but yeah, I don't do couples counseling or anything like that. Um, I strictly do individual or, or family. I'm glad you brought that up as a, as a closing reminder that there are men out there that are being manipulated. These coercion tactics are being used by, um, and you know, just really kind, loving men that just want to keep their freaking family together. And I I can say that because I had a stepfather that was completely abused and manipulated, Mm -hmm. you know, by my mother. And um, so I feel very confident in, in knowing and saying, look, I lived in a home where there was a kind, good man who just wanted to keep his family mm-hmm. together. So it's not unique. It's not a unique thing for that only women experience. There are a lot of really good men out there that are experiencing coercion and different kinds of abuse for sure. And I'm glad that you brought that up so we could acknowledge that. Yeah, yeah, of course. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah. So tell everybody if they're looking, if they're in the Arizona area or do you do Zoom counseling at all? Or? I do. I do telehealth. So okay. um, I'm licensed in Arizona, so I could see anybody in Arizona, um, okay. regardless of what part of Arizona you're in. Um, my website is lighthousecounselingaz.com um, and you can go on there. 
um, look at my services, what I offer, um, and you can reach out to me. That would be so perfect. Well, I highly recommend her. She's amazing. And she's got the knowledge and she's got the experience and she's got the dedication. And I think those are a lot of things you need to look for in some kind of a counseling service. So thank you for sharing that wisdom with, uh, and unfortunately, Felicia, I'm afraid we're going to have to do this again. So, <laughs> so yes, we'll I, I love it. Totally yeah, fine. Yes. You'll be back. So, all right. Well, have a great weekend and more importantly, have a great Halloween because that is the Oh, thank best, you so much. You also. Yes, best, ho best holiday of the whole year. Candy <laughs> costumes. Right? I love running it. around at night. And what else can you ask for? You know, great. No, pre no pressure to make that perfect turkey, right? Just uh, yeah. Snickers. Yes, for everyone. Yes, absolutely. All the chocolate. <laughs> exactly. All right. Have a great week. Thanks. You too. Bye. Yes. Bye. Hey everyone, uh, just a reminder that you can find this live. It was recorded on YouTube under Go Gray Dame and it will soon be published on a podcast. She Became Visible, you can find me anywhere you listen to your podcasts and also under the Mormon Expressions, uh, Mormon Discussions um, pod, uh, umbrella. And also if you would like to hear more, if you're looking for more information on um, getting out of an abusive situation, I really encourage you to reach out to Felicia and also to donate to Mormon Discussions Incorporated, because this is only one of the many podcasts that you will find that will help you deconstruct. They will help you with your cognitive dissonance and, um, just a small donation would be very welcome. So thank you so much for being a part of our audience today and we'll see you next week. Bye.